Bienvenidos. Marhaba. And welcome to the Never Never Podcast, exploring the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes between books. Here, we discuss the series' world-building, overarching plot, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Episode 12, Called into the Darkness, recorded June 30th, 2021, covering Full Moon, Book 2, Chapters 9 through 11. In this episode, Harry goes looking for clues at the Full Moon Garage and finds trouble instead. Marcone tries to recruit Harry, again. Harry has a most fascinating conversation with the demon Chanzagoroth, and Karen has another body. Harry actively others his non-human foes, he considers his own darkness, and we speculate on Harry's lost family. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the Never Never. Chapter 9, Harry and the Street Wolves The full moon garage is ratty and rotting with rust from the nearby lake. This is the street wolves' lair. Dresden thinks, quote, Thank God it's not too obvious or anything, unquote. I love watching Harry as a detective work through all the possibilities, no matter how mundane or far-fetched. He thinks that the nerdy kids from the gutted department store did not fit with this place, or the reputation of the street wolves. They could be connected, though. Maybe the alphas were street wolves in training? Were they lycanthropes or werewolves? Maybe they were just a gang. What if they didn't have anything to do with each other? So many questions. With luck, there'd be no one home, and he could just snoop around for something Murphy and Denton could use. It's dark inside. The only light from the open door. There are cars being worked on, tool cabinets, and shadows. Harry waits for his eyes to adjust, and calls into the darkness. Hello? He hears a whisper of clothing, reaches into his coat to grasp his blasting rod, and cusses to himself. He says he's not a cop, but a buddy of Marcone's, just wants to talk. A voice says he knows of Dresden. He's a wizard, and most assuredly, with the cops. The voice also warns him to put his hands where he can see them. Harry tries to stall, saying he's heard weird, unfriendly things about the street wolves, when he's warned again, punctuated by the sound of a pump-action shotgun, not fucking joking. Harry complies, pulling his hand out of his jacket and instead running power through his shield bracelet. He just wants to talk about some bodies last month and more last night. He mentions the fake wolf tracks and the wolf-toothed edge weapons the police suspect. Would they know anything about that? A susurrus of muttering ensues, and all of a sudden Harry realizes he's terribly outnumbered. There's over a dozen of them. And if they are the murderers, Harry is in deep shit. He swallows his panic, 
sure that if he runs, they'll tear him apart. There begins, first with one voice, then another, and another, a chant of kill him, kill him, kill him. Harry can see better in the darkness now, making out their shapes pacing, half and fully naked, and the dog-like reflective sheen of their eyes. Another voice, the first voice, Parker, he is named by a particularly savage woman, insists they stop and control themselves. If they let loose here, the cops will be all over their home. Parker turns towards the crowd, and Harry bolts for the door, putting more strength into his shield, and a good thing, too. On his way out, the shotgun roars, and while it deflects the shot, he's slammed into a wall. There's a tattooed giant blocking the door, and he's expecting Harry to push past him. So Harry punches the lunk instead, breaking the man's nose with the kinetic energy stored in Harry's force ring. This is something Dresden does consistently throughout the series. He is constantly confounding his opponent's expectations by not doing what they expect, and also not falling back on his wizardly abilities all the time, punching someone or shooting at them instead of throwing a fireball their way. His cleverness on his feet is one of the things I love about Harry. The tattooed man now indisposed, Harry full tilts towards his car, and while he struggles to start it, watches Parker in the doorway hold his frenzied pack inside, not hesitating to bash them with the butt of the gun. Dresden can see Parker clearly now, a man with greasy, graying hair. Parker and Harry lock eyes and soul gaze, revealing to Harry a few facts along with the nature of the pack. Quote, Fury overwhelmed me. Naked lust for meat, for the hunt. I needed to run, to kill. I was invincible, unstoppable. I could feel the power in my arms and hands, feel the raw energy of the wild coursing through me, sharpening my senses to animal keenness. I felt his emotions like they were my own, fury beneath rigid control, the ocean beating against a tide wall. Unquote. Parker is the leader, the alpha, and he's aging. Others are beginning to jockey for his position. The pack of lycanthropes wants to murder Harry, and if Parker can't hold them back to destroy the interloper who has challenged him himself, they will likely kill him to seize control. Parker has to kill Harry. But the worst part, he and his pack are not involved in the killings, and they have no idea who is. Solgay's over. Harry again remarks that his fellow soul-gazer gets to see Harry's soul, too. He also states that he has no idea of what Parker saw or what anyone has seen. He doesn't want to know. He's afraid of what he might find. I don't know if this is a common experience, but I personally used to do this very same thing. Few people are brave enough to seek to know their true selves, warts and all. Despite my progress, I still have a long way to go. It reminds me of The NeverEnding Story, which I recently reviewed with the Here Be Dragons YouTube channel, link below. The second gate to the Southern Oracle is simply a mirror, which reflects who you really are. Engebach, the Oracle scholar, says that most, when faced with their true selves, run away screaming. Harry just refuses to look. There is a darkness, a cruel, pragmatic streak that runs through his foundation that Harry refuses to try to understand. Incidentally, Parker, the leader of the Street Wolves, 
is the third older graying character in Full Moon. And I can't remember any others off the top of my head in the whole rest of the series. I don't know if this means anything, but I think it's weird. I suppose Marcone has salt on the temples of his pepper hair, but it's still mostly his original color, so I don't really count it. Harry finally starts his car and peels out, shaking half the way to his office. In his thoughts, he convinces himself that the lycanthropes aren't people. They just look like them. The first law of magic, thou shalt not kill, applies to humans only. See, he believes in the first law. Magical forces of creation should never be used to end a life, as long as that life is a human one. Even if he's right that they're not people, he hastily and conveniently classifies them as unprotected by Harry's and the White Council's rules. The street wolves are fair game. Interesting moral compass, that. Dresden berates himself for the stupidity of what he'd just done, and I, for one, agree wholeheartedly. I mean, stars and stones, Harry, what the hell were you thinking? Why would you go in with no prep? No gun. No idea what you'd find. No clue who or how many were inside. And you just start asking them, bold as you please. I totally promise I'm not with the cops, but seriously, did you guys do these murders I'm investigating? I mean, this is monumentally unwise. You're lucky you got out of there alive. You're lucky that they still have to, you know, try to kill you. Harry muses more about how he knows he harbors not only the will to kill with magic, but the capacity to enjoy it. He might have to kill these guys, though. Good thing they're not actually human. And with a mild flex of wizards being hard to kill, he thinks, quote, I would burn that bridge when I came to it, unquote. Harry gets inside his office, and who do you think is sitting there? It's not Murphy, not Denton, or even Parker. It's fucking Marcone. God, I love this chapter. There's tension, danger, moral ambiguity, and the stuff we already know is recapped very succinctly. One of the things, unrelated to the plot, that I love is this idea. Quote, Magic was more than just an energy source, like electricity or petroleum. The ways in which I applied it were crude and clumsy in comparison to magic in its pure form. There's more magic in a baby's first giggle than in any firestorm a wizard can conjure up. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Unquote. Moments that mean something generating magic is so cool. I imagine stands of bravery and love and forgiveness and other powerful events can do the same thing. And that's why emotions are what fuels Harry's magic. Chapter 10. Marcone drops by. Marcone is in Harry's chair. Harry's chair. Whatever he's selling, Harry is not buying it. Harry tells Marcone and Hendricks to get out of his office. There's an interesting statement Marcone makes about how police ought to be privatized, that officers would get better pay and better benefits. Harry says they'd be easier to bribe and corrupt. And I'll add that even without bribes, they'd wind up working against the interests of those who can't pay, which would mean even more disenfranchisement of the poor and strengthening of the rich, because we need more of that in our society. There's a more nuanced conversation to be had about this topic. One might even bring up the defund the police movement. I'm no expert and will only say that it is necessary for any police organization to protect those of every socioeconomic status equally. 
And that isn't happening, even now. Privatizing the police would, in my opinion, only exacerbate an already terrible situation. Moving on. Harry takes off his duster and sets aside his blasting rod, an object which makes Hendricks nervous after how it was used in the last book to trash the original varsity. Harry enjoys his discomfort. Marcone offers Harry information about the Lobo killings for a price. Come work for me. He offers an extremely generous contract, quote, with virtually no commitment and as much money as I could want. It was a pretty damn tempting deal. It was a very comfortable collar, unquote. He is being called into the darkness. Harry says no, again. Marcone asks, what would he like to be changed? And Harry says, it's not the contract, it's you. You and your blood money. Harry counters with an offer of his own. Give me your info, John. Marcone's eye twitches at the familiarity. And I'll try to stop the killer before they kill you too. Your people and associates are being torn apart, left and right. You're scared. Marcone's cool mask falters and belies his claim that, quote, You don't get where I have in life by being reckless. Just by being soulless, right? Marcone slammed his palms down on the desktop and stood. I rose with him, enough to stand over him and to keep my eyes on his. I am a man of business, Mr. Dresden. Would you prefer anarchy in the streets? Wars between rival crime lords? I bring order to that chaos. Unquote. Losing his cool is extremely out of character for Marcone. Between calling him by his first name, to repeatedly calling him scum, to calling out Marcone's fear, Harry must have really damaged his calm. Then, Harry being Harry, he pushes even further. You're nothing but a thug and a fucking animal, and you belong in a cage. Jim drops the rare F-bomb for emphasis, and Marcone goes white in a barely suppressed rage. But Harry's not done. He starts needling Marcone about Spike's horrific corpse, and again suggests Marcone is scared of being the next target. And he calls him John. Again. Marcone warns him not to do that again, that if they had been in public, Marcone would have had him killed for such disrespect. Harry retorts that if they were in public, Marcone would try. Now get out. Marcone says, fine, look up Harley McFinn, ask about the Northwest Passage Project. Harry doubts Marcone's veracity, and Marcone replies, quote, you have seen the deepest reaches of my soul, Mr. Dresden. You know me in a way so profound and intimate that I cannot yet fathom its significance, just as I know you. Unquote. They part ways frosty, and Harry starts shaking in disgust from Marcone and from nerves. He could very easily have been shot to death just now. But Harry figures Marcone won't have him killed after investing the time in making the underworld think he has a wizard P.I. on the payroll. He genuinely wants Harry in his corner, too. This is not the first time he's offered Harry a job. A wizard might be able to bump the things that go bump in the night in a way Marcone just can't. He is scared. He is only human. Damn it, why can't Harry hate him? Because even though he's scum and belongs in jail, Marcone is right. He has reduced the violence. Because Harry could see himself going down a dark path, one which might lead him to think things like 
the evil is less evil under my control. And that's why Harry must try to hate him, to not become him. Oh well, better get on those leaves. Chapter 11. Chauncey. Bob had found nothing talking to his spirit contacts, and is napping in the skull. Quote, So I went to the underworld for assistance. They know if you've been bad or good, and they make Santa Claus look like an amateur. Unquote. Something tells me, knowing what we know of the man who took on the mantle of Saint Nick, he is significantly better informed than Harry guesses. Harry Dresden has summoned a crab-like demon, one who, in my estimation, is very dangerous. It is a demon with whom he's acquainted, and so lowers Harry's guard. Even though Harry still thinks of him as an it, Chauncey's his name, Chonzagaroth, and he's flailing against the invisible summoning circle, as per usual, before calming down to talk. He must resist and try to kill Harry, after all. Those are the rules in hell. But he's unable to break Harry's will, powering the circle, and so he retrieves a pair of glasses from under a chitinous scale, down to business. Give me everything you've got on Harley McFinn and the Northwest Passage Project, Dresden wants to know. Chauncey asks what it's worth, and Harry makes clear his soul is off the table, and they begin negotiations though there are really two conversations happening here. We'll start with the one about the case. This must be important, or you wouldn't have risked calling me. Your counsel would be glad to be rid of you, and just might do it if they knew that you are summoning demons. Harry counters that he's not technically breaking any of the laws. Considering your relationship with the council, continuing to do these things smacks of the attitudes of those down below. And I should join the dark side. Blah, blah. Not gonna happen. Chauncey said he'd be employee of the month if he got Dresden to sign on. But it's still a hard no. Fine, fine. I have what you want to know. Along with more you didn't even know you wanted to know. Stuff that could save yours and others' lives. For this, you will give me another of your names. Ooh. That would make three out of four. Harry can't risk Chauncey getting his full name. The bad that could come from that might be deadly. He gives us this chilling scenario as a paranoid example. If Chauncey traded Harry's true name to one of Harry's enemies, they could use it to force Harry to break the laws of magic so that the council could finally kill him. Extra information, and everything on McFinn and the project for one more name? Fine. He then agrees on the info on Harley McFinn and the Northwest Passage Project for a name, and forgets to add the extra information to the deal. Put a pin in that. Then there's a slightly clunky couple of paragraphs which boils down to, Dresden would have asked about the killer too, but demons don't really understand personal identity, and then he proceeds to ask Chauncey all about a particular individual, and what does he get? The beginnings of a detailed biography on the man down to his favorite color. Like I said, clunky. Chauncey gives Harry that McFinn is heir to a coal mining fortune, one of the ten richest men in America, and served in Vietnam. He's the principal investor in a plan to buy up huge tracts of land and donate them to the government to be turned into an enormous, quote, 
migration-sized preserve for North American wildlife, unquote, from Colorado to Canada. Harry says he's got environmental support. Who wants to stop him? Industrial interests. Harry gets clever and guesses it's the businessman who was killed with his bodyguard last month. Confirmed. So, businessman comes to Chicago to negotiate with McFinn, but gets eaten instead. Is McFinn the werewolf in question? Then Chauncey dodges a little, smiling, and explaining McFinn's curse. St. Patrick of Ireland cursed an ancestor's bloodline to turn at the full moon, and then cursed the bloodline to continue until the end of days. Seems a little short-sighted to me. Also, a real sins-of-a-father type thing, in keeping with St. Patrick's Catholic beliefs. I forget exactly which sin it is. Maybe apostasy? That will carry on to the third and fourth generation. Hardly fair, but very biblical. Harry questions a saint doing something like that, but Chauncey is just like, It ain't my peeps, don't ask me. So Harry says that Chauncey's side has done much worse, and Chauncey retorts, quote, But we tend to be quite honest about the sorts of beings we are and the sorts of things we stand for, at least. Unquote. Harry asks if McFinn is the murderer, and Chauncey says he doesn't know, but for another of Harry's names, he could ask around. Yeah, no. Say, Chauncey, who is the killer? Please, Harry. We bargain for information on McFinn and the Northwest Passage Project that is hardly within the scope of our agreement, and I couldn't answer such a direct question anyway. Fine. What can you give me? Only that McFinn was planning on meeting with Marcone tomorrow night, who is now that project's foremost opponent and in a position to gouge McFinn for a lot of money. But then, who killed everyone else? And why? Are all those random people Marcone's man Spike? Did he own the Street Wolves? Or the Alphas? So many questions. Where can I find McFinn? 888 Ralston Place. In the Gold Coast, most swank neighborhood in Chicago. Now, my payment. And fair is fair, so Harry coughs up one of his middle names. Blackstone. Harry Blackstone Dresden. Just one more, and Chauncey would have the whole thing. No es bueno. Chauncey cashes on to the naming scheme, and Harry volunteers something one should never do for a demon, that his dad was a stage magician and chose them, and that his mom, had she lived, would have slapped him for it. Funny, my paperback copy of Full Moon has a typo and reads, Stage Musician. Harry and Chauncey have a little talk about Harry's mom, and then Chauncey goes home and Murphy calls Harry to another murder. Chapter 12 Just kidding. I would never just yada yada over such a titillating topic as the demon Chonsagroth's knowledge on Harry's mother, Margaret Gwendolyn Dresden. Our pin. For this, I'll be quoting quite a bit, running through all of Chauncey's dialogue as I don't want to miss any of the nuance in Jim's wording. Most of Harry's thoughts we'll skip and come back to at the end. Let's dig in. In Chauncey's original pitch, he claims the extra information Harry forgot to add to the bargain may, quote, preserve your life and the lives of others, unquote. Then, once Harry brings up his mom, Chauncey says, quote, 
Your mother was a most direct and willful woman. Her loss was a great sadness to all of us. Many in the underworld were familiar with her, Harry Blackstone Dresden, although under a different name. Her coming was awaited with great anticipation, but the Dark Prince lost her in the end. Didn't you know about your mother's past, Mr. Dresden? A pity that we didn't have this conversation sooner. You might have added it to the bargain we made. Of course, if you would like to forfeit another name. To know all about your mother's past, her... His voice twisted with distaste. Redemption. And the unnatural deaths of both mother and father. I am certain we can work something out. I can show them to you, Harry Blackstone Dresden, as they really are. Chonsagarath assured me, his voice dulcet. You've never seen your mother's face. I can give that to you. You've never heard her voice. I can let you hear that as well. You know nothing of what sort of people your parents were, or if you have any other family out there. Family, Harry Blackstone Dresden. Blood. Every bit as tormented and alone as you are. This is information not easily gained, even by my kind. You may not have the chance to garner it again. Unquote. Harry is again being called into the darkness. Harry becomes livid as he realizes Chanzagoroth set the exchange up this way on purpose, luring him into paying for something fleeting with the last bit of information he's willing to share, and then hook him with information he knows Harry couldn't pass up. He'd been duped, and rages at Chanzagoroth accordingly. The jig being up, Chanzagoroth began, quote, howling out his frustrated rage. We are watching you, wizard, he screamed. You walk through the shadows, and one night you will slip and fall. And when you do, we will be there. We will be waiting to bring you down to us. You will be ours in the end. Unquote. And that is everything Chauncey says, word for word, as Jim wrote it, about Harry's family. There were some things about tempting him for the measly price of his useless immortal soul, but this is what's relevant to the mystery of Harry's family. Here's what Harry knew or suspected. Harry's father died of an aneurysm when Harry was small, and his mother in childbirth. And Harry didn't even know for sure she was a wizard. She had left Harry his pentacle amulet, and his dad had given him his name. Apparently, Margaret Gwendolyn Tresden, also known as Maggie Le Fay, we know now, was a naughty girl for a time. The demons from down below were fond of her, and looked forward to her appearance in hell. A dark past indeed. But then she was redeemed somehow, and so was lost to the Dark Prince in the end. And that both mother and father died unnaturally. Tell us more, Jim. And he does. We learn a huge amount about Margaret in both Blood Rites, Book 6, and Changes, Book 12, but I'll go over that in detail when we get to those books. What's relevant here is we know about Thomas and about Thomas's father. Lord Wraith is a white court vampire, a whampire, and so Margaret's pregnancy and birth could have easily killed her. This we learn in Battleground, Book 17. But it didn't nor did it make her infertile, which many difficult births can do. 
she was resilient enough to survive it and to get pregnant again. Subsequent births after a successful first are usually easier. But then she dies in childbirth with Harry? Assuming Harry's father was a vanilla human, that's not likely. Also, Margaret doubtless has enemies if she was running with demons, so a murder veiled as a natural death doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. Now, as for why she wound up making friends with Down Below, that is anyone's guess, though I'll bet it had to do with her shacking up with Lord Rafe in some way or another. Perhaps her relationship with him is what started her down the left-hand path. Or maybe that's how she got away from him, just as Harry had to make a deal with his godmother, the Leonanshi, to ultimately defeat and escape from Justin de Morne. Then we know that Margaret was redeemed from her place in hell by something. With Malcolm's kind and generous nature and his wholesome career, as unsuccessful as it was, he may have saved her, in that perhaps he brought the best out in her and she was able to save herself. Or maybe she reformed on her own before she met Malcolm. Only Jim knows. But I think I know who killed her, and I'll save that for our coverage of Blood Rites, Book 6. Harry's father dying of a brain aneurysm is certainly possible, though that could also be murder in disguise, especially if there was foul play involved in Margaret's death. I have my own tinfoil about Malcolm Dresden, which I'll save for Deadbeat, Book 7, when we learn more about him. As for who killed him, if he was killed, I think it was Justin Dumourne, wanting to make Harry helpless and desperate from the rather brutal foster care system to see if he was indeed a wizard and whether or not he'd adopt Harry. It's ironic that Chanzagaroth is tempting Harry with seeing his mother's face and hearing her voice when he gets to do exactly that in Blood Rites, Book 6, when Harry's and Thomas's matching pentacle necklaces come together. He also dangles Thomas's existence in front of Harry, though he only says family and doesn't specify what relation. It's ironic that Harry wonders then about uncles or aunts or cousins, but nothing about siblings, or grandparents for that matter. Side note, it's interesting how parallel chapters 10 and 11 are. Marcone and Chauncey both have almost the same offer, though the details may differ. They're even made in the same order. First, it's join me. It's dangled with a very attractive gain once their relationships have been formalized. And they both talk about it in the same way, too, trivializing it by making it very transactional. Second, having been rejected, the tempters dangle the info and strike a deal. With Marcone, Harry carves himself a superior position and wins the negotiation, getting the information for the low, low price of pissing off the head of the Chicago Mafia. With Chauncey, Harry makes a paltry deal where he could have gotten so much more for an extremely steep price. Chauncey almost has Harry's full name, and that is some dangerous nonsense. Then, third, Harry blows up on both of them. With Marcone, it's blood money this and belong in a cage that, alongside taunting Marcone about being afraid. With Chauncey, quote, I didn't realize that I was shouting until I saw him flinch. I said, forget it! You think I'm some kind of simp for you to sucker in, darkspawn? Take what you have gained and go, and feel lucky that I do not send you home with your bones torn from your body or your beak ground into dust. Unquote. 
That's when Shanzagaroth blusters, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. He seems awfully sure of that. Knowing Harry's future trajectory, I'm not surprised. Now Chauncey goes home, and Murphy calls Harry to another murder at 888 Ralston Place in the Gold Coast. And that's it for this episode. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode. Links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is available on your favorite podcatcher. I was checking the analytics, and we've got listeners all over the world now, which makes me happy. So for June, I'll say hello to the US, Australia, Netherlands, Canada, Germany, the UK, India, New Zealand, and Sweden. We are so glad you're here. If you enjoyed this episode, please help the podcast grow for free. Take 30 seconds or less and share, like, comment, subscribe, write a review on iTunes, or send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com or chat with me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. My peeps, love everyone as though they were you. Take care.